Well, good morning, ASI and uh, our, our viewers. It's a great pleasure to be here this morning. I, I feel a little bit like a, a, a fraud in some ways. Um, I'm not necessarily the greatest theologian, um, but I do have a passion for the lesson topic and the series that uh, I've developed here. And uh, I know that many of you with your ministries could be standing up here today delivering the same message. But in this week's lesson, we are studying the Old Testament prophets, some of the most interesting characters in the Bible, their strong sense of justice for the poor, the marginalized, the forgotten, the overlooked, and their loud voices for reform and restoration of the Mosaic law and restoration of society as God had planned it to be. To a significant extent, the Hebrew prophets were called in response to the excess of the kings of Israel and Judah and to the failure of God's people to remain faithful to him. And this was practiced in two key ways, injustice and exploitation of the weak and vulnerable and indifference to the plight of the poor and the oppressed. The increasing disparity between the rich and the poor, between strong and weak were the markers of the nation's departure from the way that God had had them planned and the breakdown of human relationships in general. Numbness or apathy was not an option. The suffering of those who hurt, excluded and excluded had cosmic significance. The harsh voice of the prophets called people back to the vision God had for how human society ought to be and for restoration of their relationships. You know, we can sit here today discussing a deteriorating state of the world somewhat distanced from some of the debauchery. We can even maybe feel a little self-righteous about it. We can talk of the impact of sin and look forward to the return of Jesus and the restoration of his justice and his kingdom. And all of these things are valid things for us to discuss. But note, the prophets also condemned the people for their apathy. You know, many of us flew uh, to get here to Louisville today. And most of us are aware of the recent crashes of the Indonesian and Ethiopian airlines causing a worldwide debate on whether Boeing should have ever allowed the 737 MAX to be put into commission. The media have spent many thousands of hours discussing this and many thousands of pages of Prince Press in debate and condemnation. Boeing have spent hundreds of millions of dollars on researching a solution. Why is it then that the number of children who die each day from preventable diseases is equivalent to 100 passenger jets crashing, killing all on board every day? never reaches the press, never enters into our conversation. You know, when I was a, a, a young man at university, I was involved in the conference youth club. And I grew up in Adelaide in South Australia. It was a smallish community. We all knew everyone. We'd gone to school together. We did Pathfinders together. We put on a Friday night youth rally once a month. We put on a, a, a Saturday night social activity once a month. We put on a, a Sunday sporting activity once a month, and it came to camp time. And so we'd planned this event for camp. We'd planned it so that, uh, you know, on Sunday, 
we had chartered a, a fleet of small planes to take young people from Adelaide across to a small island called Kangaroo Island, which is famous for its flora and fauna. And I was looking forward to this. And on Sabbath morning, the conference president sought me out and he said, Jonathan, I've got bad news. The conference youth director was taken ill overnight, developed appendicitis, had burst, he's got peritonitis, he's in surgery as we talk. Would you stay behind on Sunday morning and run the beach activities for the kids that weren't going to Kangaroo Island? And I was quite disappointed by that. So on Sunday, I went, we ran the beach activities, we came back, everyone was sort of cleaning up and getting ready for the Sunday evening program. The conference president was kicking it off with his mission talk and his Bible study on Sunday evening and people began to dribble back from Kangaroo Island because it was all small planes and they were all chartering back and forth. And 10 minutes before the conference president stood up, we got the news that the last plane had crashed, killing all on board. And along with the pilot, we lost four of our young people from our youth group. One of those young people was the president of the youth group, and he was the conference president's son. And you can imagine when he's preparing to get up and give a Bible study, that that whole camp meeting series was changed by that one event. And now 40 years later, when I go home to my hometown, we still talk about that event. But why is it that the loss of four young people is so significant in their lives when 30,000 young children die every day of preventable diseases, but it never enters into our thinking? Why is it that our compassion for others seems to be directly correlated to whether people are close to us socially, emotionally, culturally, ethnically, economically, and geographically? How might God think about this issue? Does he look at the suffering of a child in Cambodia or Malawi with a certain sense of emotional distance? Does God have different levels of compassion for children based on their geographical location, their nationality, their race, or their parents' income? Does he forget about their pain because he is preoccupied with other things? Does he turn the offending page to read the sports section? Or is his heart broken because each child is precious to him. God surely grieves and weeps because every one of these children is his child, not somebody else's. In Amos, in the first two chapters, it begins with a popular note listing all the crimes and atrocities to God of Syria, Phoenicia, Moab, and other neighboring countries. Then later in chapter two, he moves on to their southern neighbor, Judah, and their rejection of God, their disobedience, and the punishments that will come their way. Now, in these first two chapters, the people of Israel are feeling rather comfortable, rather self-righteous. Yeah, they all deserve it. But then Amos turns on them. And he begins to, to tell them about their sins, about their evil, their idolatry, their injustice, their repeated failures in the sight of God. Uh-oh. It just got real. It hit home. How do we act as God's people today? Do we stand back and criticize the world for its immorality and exploitative ways? Or do we act out God's plan? Allow me to quote from a well-known Christian author and speaker, John Stott. Our Christian habit is to bewail the world's deteriorating standards with an air of rather self-righteous dismay. We criticize its violence, dishonesty, 
immorality, disregard for human life and materialistic greed. The world is going down the drain, we say with a shrug. Whose fault is it? Who is to blame? Let me put it like this. If the house is dark when nightfall comes, there is no sense in blaming the house. That is what happens when the sun goes down. Similarly, if the meat goes bad and becomes inedible, there is no sense in blaming the meat. That is what happens when bacteria are left alone to breed. The question to ask is, where is the salt? Just so, if society deteriorates and its standards decline until it becomes like a dark night or a stinking fish, there is no sense in blaming society. That is what happens when selfish men and women are left to themselves and human selfishness is unchecked. The question to ask is, where is the church? Why are the salt and light of Jesus Christ not permeating and changing our society? It is sheer hypocrisy on our part to raise our eyebrows or shrug our shoulders. Sorry. Um, or, or, or wring our hands. The Lord Jesus told us to be salt and light. If therefore darkness and rottenness abounds, it is largely our fault and we must accept the blame. That's powerful, isn't it? But that's what our lesson calls us to be, not to be apathetic not to be removed from it, but to take the responsibility to being part of the solution. In the first three chapters of Micah, we read of God's anger and sorrow at the evil his people have done. But then in chapter 7, verses 18 to 20, we see a shift in God's anger and harsh messaging, and we note that he longs to forgive and to restore them. He will not remain angry forever. This all accumulates in our memory text, Micah 6, verse 8, a well-quoted piece of scripture, a formula to live by. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's interesting to note that as the people moved further away from God, their selfishness and exploitive ways increased and they became more unjust. But as we are drawn closer to God, what we see is a greater concern for our neighbor. The marginalized is increased. It is through Christ that we are changed. Justice and mercy are not natural. But if we walk humbly with our God, then that is what actually changes us. We often think of repentance as confession and turning away from sin in our personal lives. But have we considered that this might also include realizing and acknowledging our complicity with, and sometimes even benefit from, larger evils in the world with broken systems and relationships, and then seeking to reform them as we have influence and resources? We often think of Sodom as a city so full of debauchery and immorality that God had to destroy it. And we think, we could never be like that. But then, let's read Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 49, he reads, Now this is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her sisters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor or the needy. 
not quite the sins that come to our mind when we talk about Sodom. Ezekiel's focus here was on economic injustice and the lack of care for the needy. How do we equate that with today's society where $6 billion is required to provide basic education for all, yet it never happens? But Americans spend $8 billion per year on cosmetics. It would take $11 billion to provide water and sanitation for all, yet it never happens. But Europeans spend $11 billion per year on ice cream. It would take $13 billion to provide basic health care and nutrition to all, yet it never happens. But globally, we spend $780 billion per year on military. How are our values in this? I would like to point out that I am a strong believer in the power of prayer. But too often we find it easier to pray, pray that a poor friend's needs might be met. When God placed us here to be the solution and gave us the resources to be the solution. Ezekiel in chapter 34 compares the corrupt leaders of Israel with God's own shepherding, giving us an insight into the difference from the way that man rules and how God would use us, have us serve. Now, you know, in all of the prophets that we've studied, there's probably stronger things that I could have used for the text, but this section of scripture, I think, just gives us the comparison between man's way and God's way and the way that he would have us. So reading in Ezekiel chapter 34, starting at verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice lambs, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food to them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out of the nations and gather them for the countries. I will bring them into their land. I will pasture them in the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, in all the settlements of the land. I will tend them in a good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. They will lie down in good grazing land and they will feed in the rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. 
I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Powerful words when you look at the contrast, aren't they? How do we rule? God has called us to be shepherds, but not to be shepherds as in the world would have us lead, but to be true shepherds in a manner that he is. Isaiah starts off the same as the other prophets, mourning what has been lost. He urges the people to remember what God has done for them and offers them hope for what God wants for them in the future. It starts in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2 with a cry. Listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. You get the urgency of the call here. In verses 16 and 17, wash yourselves to be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of the orphans. Fight for the rights of the widows. In chapters 58 and 59, Isaiah specifically returns to the concern for justice. He again describes a society in which justice is driven back. Righteousness stands at a distance. Truth is stumbled in the street. Honesty cannot enter. He describes a faith community that concerns itself with rituals of worship, but lacks the conviction of true worship, which transforms them and gives them responsibility to the care for the marginalized and the lost. But he also affirms that God will rescue them that ultimately the Redeemer will come. He proclaims the Messiah as one who will ultimately re-establish God's reign on earth and will bring justice, mercy, healing and restoration with him. When we all look at the brokenness that we see in the world, we just long for that healing that's coming, don't we? You know, all of us assembled here today are here because we've heard the cries of the poor, the oppressed, those in need, of the healing touch that only God can bring. Yet for all our good works and faithfulness, we are still overwhelmed with the enormity of poverty and brokenness. If not for the promise that God does hear, that God does care, and in the end, his justice will prevail, and all will be made new, we would be discouraged. As humans, we tend to limit things to our resources, our skills, but it is only when we learn to trust in God that we find peace in knowing that he has a plan. You know, the reason for developing this lesson series was to address the perceived divide between Matthew 28 and Matthew 25. There is no true gospel or a social gospel. There is only one gospel, and it brings complete healing to all, restoring all relationships we are one in the body of Christ. We may bring different skills and ministries. Some will sow, some will heal, some will reap. When I walk through the exhibition hall here at the ASI convention, I'm impressed by the wholeness of the gospel and the oneness that we all find by being joined together in the body of Christ. Different parts, just as the body has different parts and different organs that all perform a different service, but it's together that we create one body 
planted in Christ. But, you know, we've spoken a lot this morning about the cries of the prophets and drawn parallels between the excesses of the societies of the Old Testament and society of today. And so I'd like to invite Apinya and Sinida, who is the coordinator for the Keep Girls Safe program, to come on the stage. Apinya, tell me about your life at Keep Girls Safe. I have learned many things. I have learned to live with many ethnic minority groups at Keep Girls Safe. Example, uh, they are from Mong, Akha, Lahu. And, and I'm from Aka tribe. And I have also learned life skill at Keep Girl Safe. And, and, and so when you reflect on your time at the center, what do you see as the most beneficial thing that you got from living there? The Keep Girls Safe project is like a second home to me. It's a safe home for me. I have a chance to study and it gives me a bright future. The most important thing is I learn to know God and I learn to know Him each day. And, and so, Apinya, I understand that also that you took a decision for baptism? Yes, I was baptized when I was 12 years old. And, and, and so, Apinya, what does your life hold for you now? What are you doing right now? Currently, I'm studying in university uh, at Rajamongkorn University in Chiang Rai Province. I'm taking accounting. Wow. And also, the Keep Girls Aid Project also find a sponsor to support me to university degree. And thank you all for your generosity to make that possible. So, Sunita, what do you see as the impact for programs like this in Thailand? The program, the program like this is a big impact for us. And the problem in Thailand is really big. It's even bigger. And the life that we save the girls, like Apinya, is even rewarding to us. And, and, and so, you know, you've left the project and you've come back to it a few times, you started it. What keeps drawing you back? Yes, I have left the project several times and to Bangkok, to the city, where I think I can earn a lot of money, but that is not what I want. So when when there is a call for this position, I just apply for ADRA again. 
And this project, I would say, Jonathan, is very close to my heart. And I started this project about 14 or 15 years ago, when the problem is really bad in Thailand, in northern of Thailand, where in the far away remote uh, hill tribe, uh, because of poverty, uh, they don't have the money to feed to to uh, fend for themselves, so they sell their daughter uh, to the big cities. So they work as a prostitute or work at uh, you can see in the videos at the child label. So that's made me very sad, and then I want to come back and help uh, this project. But, but you yourself have a story and a journey. You weren't always an Adventist. And tell us a little bit about what actually drives you personally. Uh, I myself, I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist, uh, but my auntie is a Seventh-day Adventist. And I'm from a broken home. And my auntie took me to, to her home. And... Yeah, and, and she gave me this opportunity that I can study English and then come back to Thailand and help the girls. Yeah, and, and so just as the journey... Just as the journey started for Sunita from coming from a broken home to being left with a relative who was an Adventist lady who influenced her who helped her define and discover God. And then with the change that takes place within each of us, when we discover that and make our commitment, it drove her to look for other girls. And that's what motivates all of us, really, isn't it? And so you know, we just want to thank you for the great passion, the vision that God's placed in your heart, the way that you've heard his message, and the way that you've touched the lives of so many girls. And, and Apina, your story is so inspirational to us. But, you know, we can give people opportunities. That doesn't mean that they take those opportunities. And when someone allows us in their life, it, it's a precious gift to allow us to be part of a person's life. And so we just want to thank you for allowing us to be a part of your life as well. And thank you, both of you. And thank you. Thank you. You know, I'd like to invite each of you attending here today to drop by the ADRA booth. Um, and we have a, a free copy of this book uh, for the least of these for you. It's the companion guide to this quarter's lesson. So free, please drop by. And for those of you who are watching on the TV today, if you are from the United States, you can go to adra.org forward slash least book and uh, request a copy of that and we will send that to you. You know, this is an issue which I believe for us as a world church, we need to study. You know, we don't want to be complacent, such as uh, the, you know, the, the children of Israel, the churches in the past. We don't want to be the victims of society. It challenges us to be in the solution. That's what we're challenged to be, not to be apathetic, not to be spectators, but to be part of the solution. And in closing, I would like to remind you that our church has been blessed by a modern prophet who through her sermons and writings like the prophets of old calls us to step away from the selfish, exploitative ways of the world and become agents of hope and healing to the brokenness of the societies in which we live. 
Ellen White in her thoughts from the Mounts of Blessings says, the standard of the golden rule is a true standard of Christianity. Anything short of it is a deception. A religion that leads men to place a low estimate upon human beings who Christ has esteemed as such value as to give himself for them. A religion that would lead us to be careless of human needs, sufferings or rights is a spurious religion. In sliding the claims of the poor, the suffering and the sinful, we are proving ourselves traitors to Christ. It is because men take upon themselves the name of Christ while in life they deny his character that Christianity has so little power in the world. Challenging words, challenging words, aren't they? Elder A.G. Daniels, who had spent much of his, his ministry career in partnership with Ellen White, at her funeral, speaking of her life and her writings, said this, Nor is the social status of the human family lost sight of. Slavery, the caste system, unjust racial prejudice, the oppression of the poor, the neglect of the unfortunate, are set forth as unchristian and a serious menace to the well-being of the human race. And as evils which the Church of Christ is appointed by her Lord to overthrow. Powerful challenge, a lasting legacy that she left with us. You know, in closing, I would like you to contemplate this anonymous quote. Sometimes I would like to ask God why he allows poverty, suffering, and injustice when he could do something about it. So why don't you ask him, you say, well, because I'm afraid he would ask me the same question. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we pray this morning that our hearts might be broken by the things that break your heart. And in our brokenness, we ask that your healing and restoration might fill us and restore us. But our prayer this morning is not just for ourselves. Lord, we desire to do justice and to love mercy. But we realize that we cannot do that if we don't first humbly walk with you. So here this morning, we dedicate ourselves to you, Lord. We ask that you might come in, that you might shape us, that you might mold us to be more in your image. We know that this is not part of our normal nature. And Father, I thank you for all the wonderful ways that you've blessed the many ministries represented here today. And those that are not able to be here today and pray for your continued blessing. We dedicate ourselves to being your agents of hope and healing and look forward to the day that you will return, that your justice will prevail and all will be made new in your image. And until that time, Father, we just think of the brokenness that exists. We think of the brokenness that exists even in this room today of people who've come to seek healing, Lord. Make us your agents of healing. Open our eyes to the possibilities that you have before us, Lord. Help us to be able to be your agent is our fervent prayer, Lord. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.